Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Bruce and Judy, Lord, and we just pray your blessing on him as he opens your word to us. We're here to hear your word now. May our hearts hear your words, and may we live by them. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Well, let me first congratulate you on 50 years of faithfully serving the Lord here uh, in the Seattle area as the Berean Bible Church. I don't know whether I'm here this morning by default, since I'm the only living staff member that was here when we started this church, <clears throat> but I feel very honored to have been asked to come and, and share with you something from the Word of God this morning. However, I am a little offended, jealous, and hurt. I think of all the times I sat on the platform with Lloyd Peterson. He never once leaned over to me and said, why don't you preach this morning? <laughs> I could have gone without that being shared. <laughs> there were other things he shared with me, though, that, uh, you know, we were on the staff together for eight and a half years. For a long time, I used to uh, brag about the fact that I lasted longer with him than any other of his co-workers <laughs> on the staff. But the man taught me a great deal, not only about the knowledge of the Word of God, but about leadership, about being a man of God. Usually on Tuesday mornings, we'd head over to Ballard. Maybe it was Monday, I don't know. There was a coffee shop. If I remember right, it was called Manning's. And he always wanted to go for a cup of coffee and a donut. Well, here's a kid right out of Bible college. I never drank coffee. And here I'm working in a church, a merger of two covenant churches, all Scandinavians. You know, some even suck their coffee through a sugar cube in their <laughs> lip. <clears throat> and I didn't even drink coffee, hardly ever, you know. So we would go have coffee. One day he took out a napkin. And you know what? I still have that napkin. I don't know why I kept that napkin. That's been about 54 years now. And on it, he scribbled an outline of a message on the prodigal son. And as I was praying about what I might share with you this morning, I thought to myself, maybe that's why I shared, saved this. So I, I could share this with those folks today. Because the story of the prodigal son does end in a celebration, does it not? We're supposed to be here celebrating today. But he wrote this out. He said, here's a, a, a message Bruce you might use someday that's actually been preached by an individual, and he knew who the person was. So he scrolled, he, he scrolled out this outline on this napkin, the prodigal son. Number one, his madness. Number two, his sadness. Number three, his gladness. That sounds like a pretty interesting outline. Under his madness, he cabled, he traveled, and he reveled. Under his sadness, he went to the dogs, he lost his togs, and he fed the hogs. <laughs> Under his gladness, he ate the veal, he wore the seal, and he danced the reel. 
And of course, he was making fun of that in a, in a good sense, and because he couldn't believe someone would actually preach that. Uh, <laughs> but I don't think I'll preach that one today. I don't think <clears throat> we'll save that for another occasion. But the thing that interested me at that time was that he could write that out from memory. We might laugh at the way that was done, but he remembered it, and he was able to write all that out. That really impressed me. I can't remember too many of my own outlines that I preached over the years, much less somebody else's. Well, we're here to celebrate today, and uh, we celebrate, and we see celebrated in the scripture various events, various landmarks are used in times of celebration, and usually the purpose of those celebrations are to remember something, to remember God's faithfulness, to remember God's goodness, to remember God's salvation. And I was meditating on what I might share and different celebrations that are mentioned in Scripture went through my, my mind that fell in that particular category. And of course, probably the first one that would come to mind is you're thinking through the history uh, in the Old Testament. You would, you would think of the Passover that the nation of Israel celebrated the night they left Egypt. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your telephones to, uh, you know, we used to get up in the pulpit years ago, 50 years ago, and say, oh, I love to hear the rustling of those leaves. We don't say that anymore. <laughs> There's not very many leaves to rustle. We take out our iPads, and our, I still haven't gotten used to that. But in Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning with verse 1, uh, observe the month of Abed and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God. Because in the months of Abbott, that's our April, by the way, he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd, at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. Do not eat it with bread made with yeast, for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste. So that all the days of your life you may remember the time of departure from Egypt. Let no yeast be found in your possession in all your land for seven days. Do not let any of the meat. And he goes on. But the purpose of encouraging Israel on a yearly basis to celebrate this festival was to remember something. It was to remember the fact that God led them out of slavery in, out of Egypt and from slavery and he was taking them to a land that he had promised them that he would give them, a land that was truly flowing with milk and honey. And when you read through some of the other feasts in, in the Word of God, they're all, they all fall in that category of remembering, remembering God's redemption, remembering God's goodness, remembering God's faithfulness to them as a nation. And it was over 40 years later that they finally were able to enter that God had promised them. Some of you were well aware, especially if you've been in Bible instruction class, that uh, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years because of unbelief, failing to trust God to uh, conquer the land. They sent their 12 spies in. Ten of the 12 came back and said, we can't take that land. It's got giants. It's got great walled cities. You can run race chariots on top of them. And because of their unbelief, God said, they're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. One year for every day that they were in the land searching out that land except for two guys, Joshua and Caleb. And during that process of time, all the able-bodied men over 20 years of age would die, would pass away. 
And when that happened, they were ready to enter the promised land. When we come to the book of Joshua, you might turn there just real quick, chapter 3, chapter 4. Uh, uh, we're not going to read all these verses, but just so you know where some of these things are found. But they come to the uh, Jordan River. They come up the uh, east side of, of the Jordan River and the Sea, and they're about to enter that land, except it's the time of year when the Jordan floods. Now, three tribes decide to stay where they are, Reuben, Gad, and Man half-tribe of Manasseh on each side. But the rest were to go in and conquer that land. But how are they going to get in there? They couldn't get in there because of the flood stage of, of the river. Well, we know that God worked a miracle again the second time. He provided a, a, a salvation experience, so to speak, for the nation of Israel uh, by parting those waters. In fact, in chapter 3 and verse 5, Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves tomorrow. For the Lord will do amazing things among you. I wonder what went through their mind when he said that. God's going to do amazing things among you. And of course, it was next day the waters part. And they were to do something. The priests were to go in first with the ark. And then he took 12 selected men. And what did he have them pick up out of that river? What? Stone. Stone, right? They were to pick up a stone. And what were they to do with it? Take it to the other side. Pile them on a pile. For what purpose? So that their children one day would say, what is the purpose of these stones? And you are to share with them how God once again provided salvation for you. Chapter 4, uh, verse 5. These stones are to be a memorial. They are to be a remembrance to the people of Israel forever. Verse 20. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. Here again, was, it doesn't seem about a great festival, but I'm sure there must have been a time of celebration of sort uh, for this event and the way God provided for them. I think of another event as I was going through this. You know, my wife says, now remember, you always have way more things to say than you have time to say them. And so I try, what do I eliminate? What do I, what's not, what's superfluous? Nothing is superfluous. It's the word of God. It's all important. So I couldn't pass this one up. Now I noticed the kids sang a song uh, and one of the rap pieces was about Esther. Did you pick that one up? Esther, I think, is, is one, of, one of my favorite stories to read uh, in the word of God. I, I just love that. I love it when I can read about Haman getting hung on a 75-foot gallows that he cre created to kill all these other people, and he's the one that ends up hanging on that. But most of us, I think, here this morning are aware of that particular story, how he hated the Jewish people, especially Mordecai, and he got King Xerxes to issue an edict that on a certain day, uh, in the last month of the calendar year, that, that they would be allowed to go and put all the Jews to death. They're going to wipe out, once and for all, the nation of Israel. Have them killed. Well, once uh, Xerxes found out because of a, uh, an event that happened in Mordecai's life in relation to his uh, uh, niece, Esther, who was queen at the time, uh, he asked him what he could do for him, etc. You know the story. And uh, when they were told what was going to happen to his people, they didn't know, realize she was a Jewish, Jewish uh, he allowed them to take first crack at his own people. So that they would not, remember the law of the Medes and Perths cannot be changed. So on a certain day, the 13th, 14th, 15th, let's see, 
Verse 18 of chapter 10 or chapter 9 of Esther, the Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th, 14th day, and then on the 15th day they rested and made a day of feasting and joy. And there was great celebration. And later on in verse 26, he refers to these days as the days of Purim. That's when the nation of Israel was to celebrate the feast of Purim. These days, he says in verse 28, should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So here was another feast day, a memorial day. And it says here they brought presents. They gave presents to each other. And they had a great time of celebrating because here again, God had provided in a very unique way uh, a salvation and a way of escape for his own people, the nation of Israel. He had been a faithful God to them. And the Jews to this day celebrate Purim. The 14th of the last month of year will be our, our month of March. In fact, uh, the first Jewish service I ever went to, Pastor Jim, was your dad's funeral. And his mom was sick in the hospital. I think it was Swedish at the time. I think she had a blood infection. They wouldn't let her out to go to her own husband's funeral. So I went to that funeral. That was my experience. And I remember how upset I was because that rabbi said absolutely nothing about Mr. Shemariah. But he took the whole time to explain to those people the Feast of Purim because it was coming up later in the week. And so that reminded me again of this particular story and how that even today the nation of Israel recognizes and celebrates, has a great celebration for the Feast of Purim to thank God for his faithfulness and his protection over him at that time. There's another uh, celebration time that uh, in the New Testament that we uh, continue to observe, and rightfully so. Uh, usually it's referred to as a, a, a celebration day, a, a festival time, and, and that is, of course, found in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, where we are told to remember our Lord, death, burial, and resurrection. And in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, said, This is my body, when it's, uh, which is for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as he, when he offers you drink it in remembrance of me. Here again was a celebration to remember something, to remember his death, burial, and resurrection. Now you would think someone that had a, a personal relationship with Jehovah that he realized was provided by his most precious possession, his son, would have no trouble remembering and thanking God continually for that event. And for that expression of his grace and love towards mankind. But God knows the heart of man. And he realized, no, they need to remember this. And we have a celebration that we do. Uh, every church has a different maybe schedule as to how they observe that. I happen to be reared in the Plymouth Brethren Assemblies. And that was the center of their worship service every Sunday morning. They broke bread and had, had communion. I remember asking my mom one time, I says, doesn't that ever get commonplace every Sunday like that? They, no, it was still special to her because of the way that they were reared. But we celebrate that, I mean, that memorial service in remembrance of what God did for us in parting his son on the cross of Calvary. So you can go through the scriptures and you can see that there were certain events uh, in biblical history 
that God says were important enough to remember. We've gathered today to celebrate, to remember. What has been important in our 50 years of history as a church that we should be concerned about remembering? Let me suggest a couple things. I think one that's been mentioned already a number of times, I think we need to remember and thank God for his faithfulness to us. Something that's very, very easy for us to take for granted. And yet it's one of the attributes of God, is it not? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 4, God is faithful. John, writing in the Apocalypse, calls him faithful and true. Isaiah calls him the Lord who is faithful. Turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes for a moment. Chapter 3. <clears throat> when I read chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes, uh, I guess I get the feeling that Jeremiah is somewhat on a pity party here. He mentions all the things that bad that have happened to him how God seems to have deserted him, and so forth, and the loneliness that he experiences. He says in verse 19, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. That's what he was remembering at this particular time, in your own time sometime, reading the verses that precede that. But then he says this, Yet I call to mind, yet I remember, and therefore, he says, I have hope. What did he remember? Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I'm surprised we didn't sing that song this morning. We're supposed to be celebrating the faithful. We got one more opportunity, by the way. Who's on the piano this morning? <laughs> but this is where that hymn comes from. The fact that God is a faithful God. Again, it's something I think is very easy to take for granted. A second thing that I suggest that we should be remembering this morning is uh, the influence, and this has been mentioned a number of times by individuals, I appreciated uh, Kevin Ling, Ling mentioning this too, the men and women who have gone into ministry as a result of the ministry of this church. Just for fun, I took out my Grace Gospel Fellowship uh, pastor directory last week, and I kind of went through there looking for names of men or wives of men that are currently serving the Lord uh, in the ministry or have served the Lord in the past in ministry, uh, ones that uh, uh, have been involved in the mission field or some form of service. And just in this last edition alone, I came up with over 40 names in there. And that wasn't uh, Terry Falders, that wasn't Terry. It wasn't Calvo Deutsch. And I could go down the list and many that are not even listed in there that this church has had an influence on to prepare them for ministry and where they serve the God faithfully. That to me is something to be excited about. I don't know of any other church, Grace Church in this country, that has spurned so many people that are currently or have been in the past involved in ministry. I would be very proud in a good way if I were this church 
for the opportunity God has given us to train these men and see them in ministry. A third thing that I would suggest that maybe we would celebrate today as we remember what God has done through this church are the peoples around the world whose lives have been touched as a result of the missionary program and emphasis of this church. I don't know if you ever stopped to think about that. We've had people from this church serve all over the world. I don't know how many hundreds, and it might even be in the thousands, of people will be in heaven because of the message of the grace of God they heard from someone who was trained in ministry from this particular congregation. That's exciting. So many churches never get outside their walls. They never have even burdened for their own community, much less the rest of the world. When we started this church, we came from a church uh, from the time I got there in 1958 to the time I left. There was a maroon flag on the wall over here in the sanctuary. Some of you remember that? Our missionaries. Do you remember the number that was on there? 50. They supported 50 different missionaries. The uh, principle of the church that they tried to observe was 50% of all the offerings that came to that church were to go to missions. And the church would exist on the other 50% for its bills and for its staff. 50 missionaries. When we decided to form the Berean Church, uh, because of integrity, we didn't want to leave these people hanging because we knew that that would affect their support, many of them. So we wrote a letter to them. And we told them what was happening, what we were going to be doing, what the doctoral position of the church would be. And we gave them an opportunity to come with us if they so chose to do that. You know how many came with us? Does anybody remember? That's a good thing I'm still alive, I guess. <laughs> Two families, the Vern Bigelows and the Marlon Olsons. Those are the two families that said, we want to be a part of your fellowship. I just asked Mr. Jokey this morning, how many units do you think you're supporting at this particular time? He says, 40. God has blessed that and brought that back up almost to the same place it was before. And we're nowhere as big in numbers as we were in those days when, when that was taking place. So those are, to me, some exciting things that should cause us to celebrate God's faithfulness, uh, that we need to be remembering how God has blessed this church. Lloyd had a favorite saying that he often gave when he preached a message. It used to frustrate me. He said, now, I've said all that to say what? This. You remember him saying that? I said all that to say this. And usually that phrase would come out about 5 to 12. <laughs> And what all that he had said, we'd already heard the week before. So now I'm thinking, what new things am I going to hear in the next five minutes that he's going to add to what he's... But I've said all that to say this. I've said all what I've said to say this. Because of all the things that I think we should be rejoicing in and remembering and thanking God for is something that's far more important than some of these things that I've just mentioned. And it has to do with the celebrating of our distinctive doctoral position in teaching. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I am so thankful that God led my wife and I to the church in Seattle where Pastor Peterson was ministering. 
where he was still wrestling with some of these truths concerning that special message that was given to the Apostle Paul to reveal, a message that had been hidden from the foundation of the world that he chose to reveal through him after he uh, brought Paul, in what we would say, into a saving relationship to himself. And I'm so thankful, Al, for your class on Galatians that you taught so faithfully in the Maranatha group. I'll still remember that. A heterist gospel, which really isn't another gospel. And how God used that teaching to show us something that we had never seen before in Scripture. Now, I had been reared in a Plymouth Brethren background, great advocates of the Schofield Reference Bible. So I knew about dispensational teaching. I knew that God had a program for Israel and God had a program for the body of Christ. But beyond that's all I recognized. I never thought to how some of these things either harmonized or didn't harmonize, how they should be mixed or how they should not be mixed. And when I sat under this teaching and realized, wait a minute, most of the scripture that we have before us was prophesied. It had to do with his plan and purpose for this earth. And so it starts with Genesis and goes through. Until in Ephesians chapter 3, we finally read, you know what? There is a part of my plan for my world and creation that I never revealed until now. And I've chosen to reveal it through this one man. And I thought to myself, now that's interesting. Because that program and purpose had to do with the Gentile peoples. And God, Christ specifically told his disciples to go not into the way of the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but to go only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So I never thought about that. He was a different message, a different impetus, a different purpose. And some things began to fall into place in my own theology that have revolutionized my life and ministry. And that's one thing I am so thankful for this church that I was able to see and understand those truths as they were revealed there. Beloved, there's not too many people here this morning that can argue with me on this, but believe me, this church was started for one purpose and one purpose only. We did not need another evangelical Bible teaching church in the Seattle area. But no one in the Seattle area was teaching these truths. In the church where Pastor Peterson had come to see these distinctions and take a stand for it, most of the board of that church had embraced that position. Most of the staff, all the staff had embraced that position. But there was a militant group that really struggled with that. And they were very offended by that. And it caused some situations to happen that obviously were not glorifying to the Lord. And so a group of 20-some men began to meet on Sunday afternoon. What would God have us do about this? This church certainly isn't a testimony for God, the way things are going at this time. And they decided to form the Brian Bible Church. And I remember Pastor Peter himself kind of fought that. You see, we were ready to launch out on a huge building campaign. He, because of his salesmanship and leadership ability, had been responsible for helping that church purchase a significant number of houses in the neighborhood in which we were worshiping. And we had already had plans drawn up for a whole new sanctuary, a gymnasium to meet some of the needs of youth in our community, and it was an exciting time. Except for this one thing. There was not a doctrinal harmony or unity in that church. And it was really causing the church to have a poor testimony 
not only in Seattle, but I remember my aunt calling me one time from San Francisco. She says, what is this I just read in the San Francisco Chronicle this morning about you guys, what's going on in your church? I couldn't believe it. So Lloyd didn't want to do that. He didn't want to give all that up. He worked hard for that. But these boards said, Lloyd, that money was not given to you. It was given to the Lord. And we feel the Lord would have us establish a ministry where we don't have to walk on eggs when we teach what we believe. Or where we can express what we feel God is dispensing today and what would have us dispense as far as our Bible teaching ministry is concerned. One of the great challenges of our ministry today, I think, is to see that this teaching and preaching ministry continues. Paul was a wise man. He knew it wouldn't necessarily be a popular theology. And when he writes to two young pastors, Timothy and Titus, if you read through those books, you'll see that those three books are a charge to these two young pastors. A charge to do what? A charge to guard the deposit. 1 Timothy 6.20 Timothy, guard that which has been entrusted to your care. 2 Timothy 1.14 Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to your care. Because he knew that that would be a problem one day. Guard that deposit. How were they to do that? They were to do that by sound teaching. They were to do that by choosing faithful men who would be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 2, 2. He also writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 2 that is required of stewards. A steward is a trustee. Something's been given to this trustee entrusted to him. And in this case, it was a pattern of theology and words. It's required of a steward that a man be found faithful. So choose faithful men to teach. Choose faithful men to lead your fellowship and your congregation. Entrust these truths to faithful men. Why am I telling you this? Some say, what, what does that have to do with celebration? What does that have to do with 50 years? Don't you know that we've been teaching these things for over 50 years? Maybe so. But I know one thing. It's easy to become careless. It's easy to be, assume that people know and understand what you believe you're talking about. Teaching doctrine is not popular today, is it? We hear that all the time. People say, just tell me how to live. I want to go away with something practical. I don't want to have to come to church and sit there and think. Just give me something I can take home with me. Listen to me, beloved. Proper living emanates from proper doctrine. You teach unsound doctrine, you're going to have a mixture of unsound living, so to speak, as far as the Christian life is concerned. Just let me share one more illustration with you, because I think it's so vital. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 20. The book of Acts, chapter 20. Interesting event taking place here. Paul is heading back to Jerusalem in concluding his third missionary journey. And uh, he hasn't got time 
to go to Ephesus. He would like to have gone back there. He had ministered to the church in Ephesus for over three years, longer than any other church that he had planted or that emanated from his ministry. So these men, this church was well-schooled in his Pauline theology, so to speak. They understood what that mystery was. The Jew and Gentile are now one body in Christ. They're not part of a nation looking for an earthly kingdom, but they're a heavenly people with a heavenly citizenship. They understood those great truths. And it says from verse 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, you know how the whole time I was with you from the first day I came into the province of age, I served the Lord with great humility, with great tears, although I was severely tested uh, by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but I've taught you publicly from the house, uh, house to house. I have decided to both Jews and Greeks, I declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by this spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships await me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to myself. If only I may finish the race, complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of grace of God. Now he does something. I don't know what God's going to allow us to remember when we get to heaven. Because uh, we know there's a verse that says the former things will be remembered no more. So I don't know how far to carry that. But he does something in his ministry that I have never understood. Now I know that none among you whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. So he tells them before he ever gives them this last charge... You're not going to see me anymore. Do you think a lot of ears stopped right there? If Pastor Jim were to get up before his message on a Sunday morning, so by the way, this is my last Sunday here, I'm through after this service. Do you think you would listen to what he had to say the rest of the service? You could not wait to say, why, Jim, are you leaving? What has caused this? You're going to see my face no more. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Keep watch over yourselves. Now, he's speaking to the elders. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and, and spare not the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort truth in order to draw away disciples after them. And he goes on. And when you get to the end of the, book, uh, the, end of the chapter, uh, verse 36, is, is when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept. They embraced him. They kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him back to the ship. Do you know, within five years of this event, according to 2 Timothy 1.15, within five years of this event, Paul had to say, you know, of all those in Asia Minor that understood my theology and my doctrine, not one 
is left standing with me. Not one. What happened? He'd warned them. They were listening to the wrong message. They were taken up by a man. They should have been listening when he said, you know, take heed to yourselves. Because from your own ranks, your own board, your own leadership, there are those that are going to tear you away from the sound teaching of the Word of God. They missed that altogether. The only thing they can remember was, we're not going to see him anymore. How sad. How sad. The eyes were on and their ears were listening to the wrong thing. So I ask you, how faithful have we been to our original intent? Can our children, our grandchildren, our spiritual leadership, our board, our teachers, can they articulate our doctrinal position? Could they defend what makes this church unique? Could they defend your distinctives to someone who was to inquire of them of that? Again, I can only say thank you for investing in my life, in my ministry, and what you folks have meant to us over the years. You know, where you start, it seems like it's always your home church. It never changes. We were college sponsors. Most of the college group was our age or older. We had just been married. I had no father role model in my family. My dad died Lou Gehrig's disease when I was eight. My brother was five. It was interesting to me to hear what Kevin, Pastor Kevin, said this morning. Because I wanted to be a good husband. I wanted to be a good father. I didn't have any role model in my own home to look at. The only men I knew were the ones that I would see in, in church. And who thinks, much about, who thinks much about that when you're in high school? But after graduating from Moody and moving to Seattle, going to Seattle Pacific College, and the Lord leading this, to this church, the thing that impressed me the most was the number of spiritual men that fulfilled the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. I couldn't believe it. I never saw so many men in one church that were able to fulfill those. They were able to teach. But I remember watching families in their lives to see what I might learn from my own marriage. And he mentioned a family. It was interesting to me that he mentioned that family. And that was the Norm MacDonald family. They would come down the aisle Sunday morning, Eugene played the organ. Those four kids would sit in a row right there, not stir the whole morning. They would leave and go out. You would see Norm and Eugene holding hands as they walked to their car. And I thought, boy, I hope that God allows me to have a family like that someday. Thank you, Norm and Eugene, for being an example to us, testimony to us and probably to many more people here than you realize. God is good. God is faithful. Let us be faithful. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to share these few thoughts this morning. I thank you for the ministry of this church, what it has meant to Judy and myself and our family. I thank you for the roots 
that we have here. I thank you for allowing me to be illuminated by the Spirit of God with your truth concerning what you are doing in this day of grace, what you would have me teach, what you would have me encourage others to be teaching and living. Bless the remainder of our time together today. May the Holy Spirit be pleased to impress upon our hearts the things we have heard and interacted with this morning. In the Savior's name we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bruce. Come over here, Bruce, so we can walk down. I want people to be able to greet you after the service here. Six o'clock tonight, we'll be back here for our uh, evening service. Brother Dick's going to be sharing with us, Bill and Nancy, dessert fellowship afterward. I hope you'll come and join us. It's going to be a wonderful time to wrap up our celebration. God has kept us near the cross for 50 years, and our, our prayer will stay near the cross of Jesus Christ from which we have been crucified the world, the world to us, and we now have a hope. And I hope you're here today. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I want you to know how much God loves you. And before you leave this place today, you can receive forgiveness for sins. You can ask Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, paid for your sins, fully God, fully man. He died for you. And you can receive eternal life and forgiveness for sins. It's not between you and me, the church and you, or anything else. It's between you and God. And I invite you to come near the cross and acknowledge your need and receive Christ's forgiveness for your sins. Heavenly Father, what a joy it's been to be here today and to share the celebration, to share voices and to hear this music, to hear each other singing today, Lord. What an what a encouragement that is, to hear your word, to hear our children. And Father, we just leave this place rejoicing and I do ask, Father, if there be one person here today who honestly has to say they do not know the love of Jesus Christ, they have not received Christ as Savior, that they would not leave this place without receiving Christ as their Savior. Look forward to gathering this evening. In Christ's name we pray.